Chapter Two, Part One of A Wonder Book for Girls and Boys by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Clive Catterall from clivecatterall.com. The Golden Touch, Part One. At noon, our juvenile party assembled in a dell through the depths of which ran a little brook. The dell was narrow, and its steep sides from the margins of the stream upward were thickly set with trees, chiefly walnuts and chestnuts, among which grew a few oaks and maples. In the summer-time the shade of so many clustering branches, meeting and intermingling across the rivulet, was deep enough to produce a noontide twilight. Hence came the name of Shadow Brook. But now, ever since autumn had crept into this secluded place, all the dark verdure was changed to gold, so that it really kindled up the dell instead of shading it. The bright yellow leaves, even had it been a cloudy day, would have seemed to keep the sunlight among them, and enough of them had fallen to strew all the bed and margins of the brook with sunlight too. Thus the shady nook, where summer had cooled herself, was now the sunniest spot anywhere to be found. The little brook ran along over its pathway of gold, here pausing to form a pool in which minnows were darting to and fro, and then it hurried onward at a swifter pace, as if in haste to reach the lake, and, forgetting to look where it went, it tumbled over the root of a tree, which stretched quite across its current. You would have laughed to hear how noisily it babbled about this accident, and even after it had run onward the brook still kept talking to itself, as if it were in a maze. It was wonder-smitten, I suppose, at finding its dark dell so illuminated, and at hearing the prattle and merriment of so many children. So it stole away as quickly as it could, and hid itself in the lake. In the dell of Shadow Brook, Eustace Bright and his little friends had eaten their dinner. They had brought plenty of good things from Tanglewood in their baskets, and had spread them out on the stumps of the trees and on mossy trunks, and had feasted merrily and made a very nice dinner indeed. After it was over, nobody felt like stirring. "'We will rest ourselves here,' said several of the children, "'while Cousin Eustace tells us another of his pretty stories.' Cousin Eustace had a good right to be tired as well as the children, for he had performed great feats on that memorable forenoon. Dandelion, Clover, Cowslip, and Buttercup were almost persuaded that he had winged slippers, like those which the nymphs gave Perseus. So often had the student shown himself at the tip-top of a nut-tree when only a moment before he had been standing on the ground. And then what showers of walnuts had he sent rattling down upon their heads for their busy little hands to gather into the baskets! In short, he had been as active as a squirrel or a monkey, and now, flinging himself down on the yellow leaves, seemed inclined to take a little rest. But children have no mercy nor consideration for anybody's weariness, and if you had but a single breath left they would ask you to spend it in telling them a story. "'Cousin Eustace,' said Cowslip, "'that was a very nice story of the Gorgon's head. "'Do you think you could tell us another as good?' "'Yes, child,' said Eustace, "'pulling the brim of his cap over his eyes, "'as if preparing for a nap. "'I can tell you a dozen, as good or better, if I choose.' "'Oh, Primrose and Periwinkle, did you hear what he says?' "'cried Cowslip, dancing with delight. "'Cousin Eustace is going to tell us a dozen better stories "'than that about the Gorgon's head.' "'I did not promise you even one, you foolish little cowslip,' said Eustace, half pettishly. 
However, I suppose you must have it. This is the consequence of having earned a reputation. I wish I were a great deal duller than I am, or that I had never shown half the bright qualities with which nature has endowed me. And then I might have my nap out in peace and comfort. But Cousin Eustace, as I think I have hinted before, was as fond of telling his stories as the children of hearing them. His mind was in a free and happy state, and took delight in its own activity, and scarcely required any external impulse to set it at work. How different is this spontaneous play of the intellect from the trained diligence of maturer years, when toil has perhaps grown easy by long habit, and the day's work may have become essential to the day's comfort, although the rest of the matter has bubbled away. This remark, however, is not meant for the children to hear. Without further solicitation, Eustace Bright proceeded to tell the following really splendid story. It had come into his mind, as he lay looking upward into the depths of a tree, and observing how the touch of autumn had transmuted every one of its leaves into what resembled the purest gold. And this change, which we have all of us witnessed, is as wonderful as anything that Eustace told about in the story of Midas. Once upon a time there lived a very rich man, and a king besides, whose name was Midas, and he had a little daughter, whom nobody but myself ever heard of, and whose name I either never knew or have entirely forgotten, so, because I love odd names for little girls, I choose to call her Marigold. This King Midas was fonder of gold than of anything else in the world. He valued his royal crown chiefly because it was composed of that precious metal. If he loved anything better, or half so well, it was the one little maiden who played so merrily around her father's footstool. But the more Midas loved his daughter, the more did he desire and seek for wealth. He thought, foolish man, that the best thing he could possibly do for this dear child would be to bequeath her the immensest pile of yellow glistening coin that had ever been heaped together since the world was made. Thus he gave all his thoughts and all his time to this one purpose. If ever he happened to gaze for an instant at the gold-tinted clouds of sunset, he wished that they were real gold, and that they could be squeezed safely into his strong-box. When little Marigold ran to meet him with a bunch of buttercups and dandelions, he used to say, "'Pooh, poor child! If these flowers were as golden as they look, they would be worth the plucking!' And yet, in his earlier days, before he was so entirely possessed of this insane desire for riches, King Midas had shown a great taste for flowers. He had planted a garden in which grew the biggest and beautifulest and sweetest roses that any mortal ever saw or smelt. These roses were still growing in the garden, as large, as lovely, and as fragrant as when Midas used to pass whole hours gazing at them and inhaling their perfume. But now, if he looked at them at all, it was only to calculate how much the garden would be worth if each of the innumerable rose-petals were a thin plate of gold. And though he was once fond of music, in spite of an idle story about his ears which was said to resemble those of an ass, the only music for poor Midas now was the chink of one coin against another. At length, as people always grow more and more foolish unless they take care to grow wiser and wiser, Midas had got to be so exceedingly unreasonable that he could scarcely bear to see or touch any object that was not gold. He made it his custom, therefore, 
to pass a large portion of every day in a dark and dreary apartment underground at the basement of his palace. It was here that he kept his wealth. To this dismal hole, for it was little better than a dungeon, Midas betook himself whenever he wanted to be particularly happy. Here, after carefully locking the door, he would take a bag of gold coin, or a gold cup as big as a washbowl, or a heavy golden bar, or a peck measure of gold dust, and bring them from the obscure corners of the room into the one bright and narrow sunbeam that fell from the dungeon-like window. He valued the sunbeam for no other reason but that his treasure would not shine without its help. And then would he reckon over the coins in the bag, toss up the bar, and catch it as it came down, sift the gold dust through his fingers, look at the funny image of his own face as reflected in the burnished circumference of the cup, and whisper to himself, "'Oh, Midas, rich King Midas, what a happy man thou art!' But it was laughable to see how the image of his face kept grinning at him out of the polished surface of the cup. It seemed to be aware of his foolish behaviour, and to have a naughty inclination to make fun of him. Midas called himself a happy man, but felt that he was not yet quite so happy as he might be. The very tip-top of enjoyment would never be reached unless the whole world were to become his treasure-room, and be filled with yellow metal which should all be his own. Now, I need hardly remind such wise little people as you are, that in the old, old times when King Midas was alive, a great many things came to pass which we should consider wonderful if they were to happen in our own day and country. And on the other hand, a great many things take place nowadays which seem not only wonderful to us, but at which the people of old times would have stared their eyes out. On the whole, I regard our times as the strangest of the two. But however that may be, I must go on with my story. Midas was enjoying himself in his treasure-room one day, as usual, when he perceived a shadow fall over the heaps of gold, and looking suddenly up, what should he behold but the figure of a stranger, standing in the bright and narrow sunbeam? It was a young man, with a cheerful and ruddy face. Whether it was the imagination of King Midas through a yellow tinge over everything, or whatever the cause might be, he could not help fancying that the smile with which the stranger regarded him had a kind of golden radiance to it. Certainly, although his figure intercepted the sunshine, there was now a brighter gleam upon all the piled-up treasure than before. Even the remotest corners had their share of it, and were lighted up when the stranger smiled, as with tips of flame and sparkles of fire. As Midas knew that he had carefully turned the key in the lock, and that no mortal strength could possibly break into his treasure-room, he of course concluded that his visitor must be something more than mortal. It is no matter about telling you who he was. In those days when the earth was a comparatively new affair, it was supposed to be often the resort of beings endowed with supernatural power, and who used to interest themselves in the joys and sorrows of men, women, and children, half playfully and half seriously. Midas had met such beings before now, and was not sorry to meet one of them again. The stranger's aspect, indeed, was so good-humoured and kindly, if not beneficent, that it would have been unreasonable to suspect him of intending any mischief. It was far more probable that he came to do Midas a favour. And what could that favour be, unless to multiply his heaps of treasure? The stranger gazed about the room, and when his lustrous smile had glistened upon all the golden objects that were there, 
he turned again to Midas. "'You are a wealthy man, friend Midas,' he observed. "'I doubt whether any other four walls on earth contain so much gold as you have contrived to pile up in this room.' "'I have done pretty well, pretty well,' answered Midas, in a discontented tone. "'But after all, it is but a trifle when you consider that it has taken my whole life to get it together.' If one could live a thousand years, he might have time to grow rich. What? exclaimed the stranger. Then you are not satisfied? Midas shook his head. And pray, what would satisfy you? asked the stranger. Merely for the curiosity of the thing, I should be glad to know. Midas paused and meditated. He felt a presentiment that this stranger, with such a golden lustre in his good-humoured smile, had come hither with both the power and the purpose of gratifying his utmost wishes. And now, therefore, was the fortunate moment, when he had but to speak and obtain whatever possible or seemingly impossible thing it might come into his head to ask. So he thought and thought and thought, and heaped up one golden mountain upon another in his imagination, without being able to imagine them big enough. At last, a bright idea occurred to King Midas. It seemed really as bright as the glistening metal which he loved so much. Raising his head, he looked the lustrous stranger in the face. "'Well, Midas,' observed the visitor, "'I see that you have at length hit upon something that will satisfy you. Tell me your wish.' "'It is only this,' replied Midas. I am weary of collecting my treasures with so much trouble, and beholding the heap so diminutive, after I have done my best. I wish everything that I touch to be changed to gold. The stranger's smile grew so very broad that it seemed to fill the room like an outburst of the sun gleaming into a shadowy dell, where the yellow autumnal leaves, for so look the lumps and particles of gold, lie strewn in the glow of light. The golden touch! exclaimed he. You certainly deserve credit, friend Midas, for striking out so brilliant a conception. But are you quite sure that this will satisfy you? How could it fail? said Midas. And will you never regret the possession of it? What could induce me? asked Midas. I ask nothing else to render me perfectly happy. Be it as you wish, then, replied the stranger, waving his hand in token of farewell. Tomorrow, at sunrise, you will find yourself gifted with the golden touch. The figure of the stranger then became exceedingly bright, and Midas involuntarily closed his eyes. On opening them again, he beheld only one yellow sunbeam in the room, and, all around him, the glistening of the precious metal which he had spent his life in hoarding up. Whether Midas slept as usual that night, the story does not say. Asleep or awake, however, his mind was probably in the state of a child's to whom a beautiful new plaything has been promised in the morning. At any rate, day had hardly peeped over the hills when King Midas was broadly awake, and stretching his arms out of bed, began to touch the objects that were within reach. He was anxious to prove whether the golden touch had really come, according to the stranger's promise. So he laid his fingers on a chair by the bedside, and on various other things, but was grievously disappointed to perceive that they remained of exactly the same substance as before. Indeed, he felt very much afraid that he had only dreamed about the lustrous stranger, or else the latter had been making game of him. 
and what a miserable affair would it be if, after all his hopes, Midas must content himself with what little gold he could scrape together by ordinary means, instead of creating it by a touch. All this while it was only the grey of the morning, with but a streak of brightness along the edge of the sky where Midas could not see it. He lay in a very disconsolate mood, regretting the downfall of his hopes, and kept growing sadder and sadder, until the earliest sunbeam shone through the window and gilded the ceiling over his head. It seemed to Midas that this bright yellow sunbeam was reflected in rather a singular way on the white covering of the bed. Looking more closely, what was his astonishment and delight when he found that this linen fabric had been transmuted into what seemed a woven texture of the purest and brightest gold. The golden touch had come to him with the first sunbeam. Midas started up in a kind of joyful frenzy, and ran about the room, grasping at everything that happened to be in his way. He seized one of the bedposts, and it became immediately a fluted golden pillar. He pulled aside a window-curtain, in order to admit a clearer spectacle of the wonders which he was performing, and the tassel grew heavy in his hand, a mass of gold. He took up a book from the table. At his first touch it assumed the appearance of such a splendidly bound and gilt-edged volume as one often meets with nowadays, but on running his fingers through the leaves, behold, it was a bundle of thin golden plates, in which all the wisdom of the book had grown illegible. He hurriedly put on his clothes, and was enraptured to see himself in a magnificent suit of gold cloth, which retained its flexibility and softness, although it burdened him a little with its weight. He drew out his handkerchief, which little Marigold had hemmed for him. That was likewise gold, with the dear child's neat and pretty stitches running all along the border in gold thread. Somehow or other this last transformation did not quite please King Midas. He would rather that his little daughter's handiwork should have remained just the same as when she climbed his knee and put it into his hand. But it was not worth while to vex himself about a trifle. Midas now took his spectacles from his pocket and put them on his nose in order that he might see more distinctly what he was about. In those days spectacles for common people had not been invented, but were already worn by kings, else how would Midas have any? To his great perplexity, however, excellent as his glasses were, he discovered that he could not possibly see through them. But this was the most natural thing in the world, for, on taking them off, the transparent crystal turned out to be plates of yellow metal, and of course were worthless as spectacles, though valuable as gold. It struck Midas as rather inconvenient that, with all his wealth, he could never again be rich enough to own a pair of serviceable spectacles. "'It is no great matter, nevertheless,' said he to himself, very philosophically. "'We cannot expect any great good without its being accompanied with some small inconvenience. The golden touch is worth the sacrifice of a pair of spectacles, at least, if not one's very eyesight. My own eyes will serve for ordinary purposes, and little Marigold will soon be old enough to read to me.' Wise King Midas was so exalted by his good fortune that the palace seemed not sufficiently spacious to contain him. He therefore went downstairs, and smiled on observing that the balustrade of the staircase became a bar of burnished gold as his hand passed over it in his descent. He lifted the door-latch—it was brass only a moment ago, but golden when his fingers quitted it—and emerged into the garden. Here, as it happened, he found a great number of beautiful roses in full bloom, and others in all the stages of lovely bud and blossom. 
very delicious was their fragrance in the morning breeze. Their delicate blush was one of the fairest sights in the world. So gentle, so modest, and so full of sweet tranquillity did these roses seem to be. But Midas knew a way to make them far more precious, according to his way of thinking, than roses had ever been before. So he took great pains in going from bush to bush, and exercised his magic touch most indefatigably, until every individual flower and bud, and even the worms at the heart of some of them, were changed to gold. By the time this good work was completed, King Midas was summoned to breakfast, and as the morning air had given him an excellent appetite, he made haste back to the palace. End of chapter 2, part 1